may be seated. Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 27 through 42. To give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Father, would you open our eyes this day? Would you lead us to a place of understanding of who you are, of who we are? of your work in this world and your work in us and your work through us. Lord, would you teach us, we pray, in Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, if you've been with us for the last several weeks, you know that we've been uh, working our way through this passage quite slowly Um, Some of you have given up that I'll ever move on to another passage of Scripture because we've been now in John 4 for, this is our third week together in John 4. Believe it or not, if you've not been with us, we actually haven't read this part of John 4 uh, yet. There was two messages on the first half of this story and this is the third and and final, I do mean that, the final message in uh, John chapter 4. Now, the reason we're in John 4, again, if you are just joining us for the first time, uh, it is our custom here at Cornerstone to take the first few weeks at the beginning of 
uh, a new year in the month of January to remind ourselves of who we are and what it is that we are to be about. Um, one a pretty well-known uh, pastor in our day and time says that we forget uh, why it is we come to church and, and what it means to be a Christian. It just kind of leaks out of us all of the time. And we have to constantly be reminded and stirred up, oh yeah, that's why we do these things. And, and this is why Jesus calls us uh, to these things. And um, I believe it's actually the wisdom of our God who gives us one day in seven for that very purpose. How many times have you come to church on a Sunday morning and heard, as it were, the truth that you know, but it felt like you heard it for the first time? It felt like you were, you were coming into it again and afresh. And, and even though in one real sense, as I've admitted this to you every, every week, it's astonishing to me that you, you come back week after week to, to worship. And then I remember, no, wait, it's because it's our God. And when we begin to revel in the truth of the gospel, that it's the same message every week, it's never the same. It's always fresh when the Spirit of the Lord speaks to us from His Word. And that's, that's what we've seen even in our slow walk through John 4 already, and I think what we're going to see today. And we've been focusing really on our vision as a local congregation, to glorify God in the gospel as disciples who make disciples. That's what we want to be here at Cornerstone. We want to give ourselves over to the worship of God. We want to glorify Him. How do we do that best? In Christ, who is the very center of the gospel, which we'll see today. And then as we do that, what happens? We follow Him. We are His disciples. And as we follow Him, what do we do? We make disciples. We're on mission. It's, it's what flows out of the very heart of what it means to be a, a lover of Christ. Now, we've been really focusing on that final phrase to be and to make disciples. That's really what these three weeks have been about, and that's what we're concluding on today. We're really focusing on this make disciples piece as we see it here in John chapter 4 as the woman, as I said right at the very beginning of our time together, really shockingly, this woman who's had five husbands and now a live-in boyfriend who has so many doctrinal errors and inconsistencies as a Samaritan, considered a half-breed and a heretic by the Israelites, in one encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ becomes the leading and most profound evangelist in the Samaritan world. That's remarkable. And, and it's because Jesus, through the power of the gospel, changes her heart on the spot through the power of this glorious gospel. We want to see today how that happens and then what she does with what happens to her, where she takes it. We titled the message, Sharing Jesus, because she does it really very simply. And here's what's really remarkable about this woman. She shares Jesus powerfully, compellingly, and the Lord bears remarkable fruit through her. And she doesn't really know very much. <laughs> and she never, she never, get this, she never even went to Sunday school. She never had evangelism training. How in the world did this happen? Well, as we ask that question, I want us to look at this text together, or really in these three ways. I want you to see that there's a picture in this text of what it means to be a disciple. If you're, if you're questioning today, what, is it, what would a real disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ look like? What does it take to be a disciple of Christ? I think we see it in this woman. She gives us a picture 
of what it means to be a disciple. But secondly, we have an example of what it means to be a disciple maker. We have an example in this text of what it means to be a disciple maker. And then we conclude with Jesus' words where he calls us into the work of disciple making. So we have a picture, we have an example, and we have a call. Let's look first at the picture. The picture of what it means to be a disciple. Meeting Jesus changed this woman's life. It utterly changed this woman's life. I want to I want to show you how it changed her life. She came to the well alone. She came in the middle of the day because she couldn't come with the, the other women. She was a social outcast, as it were. She didn't come in the morning when all the other women would. She, she came to this well because she, she wanted to be left alone. She didn't want anybody to see her, and hopefully she could return home, use the water for what it is that she needed, cooking and cleaning and bathing and all the things that you need water for. And then she went to the well, but as she was there, she met Jesus. And here's what happened. She never gets any water. And she doesn't go home. She doesn't do any of the work she planned to do. And instead, she goes into the town to see all the people she usually avoids. And she shows them the love of Jesus. <laughs> that's amazing. Now, that's radical change. That's, that's radical change. This woman has had a change in mission. She's had an absolute change in mission by encountering the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the reason that happened was because she became a follower of him. She became a disciple. That's what that word means. She's a, she's a follower. She's following in the footsteps of, of her Savior. And when you become a disciple, a disciple of anything, you can be a disciple of anything, right? You can be a, an auto mechanic disciple. You can be a a disciple of a lawyer. You can be a disciple of cooking or baking. Whenever you become a disciple of something, here's one thing that must happen. Your priorities must change. Your priorities must change. Um, whenever priorities change, whenever they shift, it means that there are going to be things that you don't do that you once did. And there are going to be things that you now do that you didn't once do. It's going to require that of you. Now, if you think of anything over the course of your life, that is true. If you're going to learn an instrument or, or you're going to learn a, a sport or whatever it is you're going to do, you're going to have to say no to certain things that you once did, and you're going to have to say yes to certain things that will center around what? This new compelling desire. And what I think you see in this passage is this woman shows us that when you become a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, she shows us these two things. You're going to have to leave certain things behind, and you're going to have to move towards different things. This is what, this is what she shows us. And this is whatever, this must be, it's not just true of this woman. It's true for anyone who would label themselves a disciple of Jesus. What does this woman leave behind? Well, look at verse 28. So the woman left the jar... And she went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all I ever did. What did this woman leave behind? A jar. 
She left behind a jar. Okay, big deal. She left behind a jar. It's a huge deal. It's a huge deal. In fact, John is indicating to us, but I believe strongly in the text, he's indicating that this woman has become a disciple of Jesus. Why do I say that? Well, well let me give you an example. Matthew chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, you might turn there or use the Pew Bible, if not just simply uh, listen as I reflect on Matthew 4 for a second. When Jesus, notice when Jesus encounters two of his would-be disciples, Peter and Andrew, what are they doing? Well, they're fishing. Why? Because they're vocationally fishermen. And when Jesus comes up to them and he says to them, Matthew 4, follow me, he says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, I want you to see in a very real sense that Jesus is doing in Matthew chapter 4 almost the identical thing that he did here in John chapter 4 with the woman. This woman here, what is she doing? She's gathering water. What is water? It is the vocational center of what she's called to. We said it's the primary resource for all of the work that a woman would do. It's cooking, cleaning, bathing, etc. She couldn't do what it is she was called to do without water. These men couldn't be fishermen without the fishing nets, without the boat. When he calls them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, what does he say to the woman? Woman, if you knew who I was that was speaking to you, you would be asking me for living water. He's in a sense tying himself into her vocation. Woman, your whole existence revolves around water. And your whole existence will always revolve around water. But a different water than you've ever dreamed of. A different water than you've ever dreamed of. Peter and Andrew, your whole life has revolved around fishing. And your whole life will revolve around fishing but a different fishing than you've ever dreamed of. He's, in a very real sense, doing the same thing that he did in calling his disciples in, in Matthew chapter 4. And here's what, here's what Matthew, here's what we read in Matthew chapter 4. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. What, what did they leave behind? Well, they left their nets. Big deal. No, no, no. Huge deal. They left their means of survival and livelihood. Matthew is indicating in that text that they left their life behind to follow Jesus. Now, we, we know that because we see it again later in that chapter when he does it to James and John. And the exact same response that we get from James and John is they immediately left their boat. And then notice what it says here. And their father and followed him. Now, to leave your father in the vocation that your father had trained you up in to become was to forsake your family. Jesus says if you're not willing to, as it were, hate your family, your father and your mother, and come follow me, then you're not worthy to be what? My disciple. This is a picture of vocational change. These are men who have bought into in followership of Christ so much so that they're willing to leave behind the life that they've always known. Now think of the challenge in Mark chapter 10 with the rich and ruler. When he comes to Jesus and he asks for eternal life, Jesus responds to him and essentially says, you have to leave your life behind. All you've got to do to follow me is sell everything that you have. Give it to the poor. 
And you too can be a James or a John or a Peter and an Andrew. And we're told that the rich young ruler, saddened, walks away because he owned a whole bunch of things. He didn't leave anything behind. He was a disciple. He stayed in the vocation of gathering riches rather than opting for the riches of heaven, the treasures of heaven. This woman, this jar in the context of this text represents her fishing net. It is her vocation. Think of it, it's the way that she did what she did, but think even more. It's the way that she took care of her home. It's the way that she kept her husband happy. Or in this case, the live-in boyfriend. And after meeting Jesus, after meeting her real groom, she left the place of the well and had never thought about physical water. Why? Because she had tasted living water. She had tasted living water. And so what did she become enamored with? Spreading living water. That others would drink as she has drunk. You see, when you leave behind something, as a disciple, it's always because you have a vision of what it is that you're moving towards. I remember when I started playing guitar. Some of you, some of you probably in this room play guitar. It's very painful to begin to play guitar, right? These little ends of your fingers, they hurt. The scales, you, you know. I remember playing until my, literally the ends of my fingers bled. Until you, you know, work up those calluses. You've got to push through the suffering of what it means to be a disciple to play in order, why? To have a vision of playing like Stevie Ray Vaughan, you know? Or whoever your, whoever your guitar dream is. You have a vision, you're moving towards something, and so you're willing to suffer through or leave behind something that, that you once prized. It's how discipleship works. And what we see this woman is willing to do is she is willing not only to leave behind, as it were, the vocation, the life, everything that the jar and the well represented, but she's a, she actually now moves towards the very people who condemned her. She begins to exchange what was her misery for a ministry. Instead of moving away from the people who had shunned her, who had treated her for what she was, which was a social outcast, she now with freedom and with excitement and with love begins to move towards these very people. Now, let me, let me just put this in the context. Think of how risky this was. It's, this is extremely risky. This woman has no respect and no standing in this community. She's going into the town. What is she doing? I want you to, I mean, just imagine this. She's going into the town and she's saying, I've met the Messiah. Now, I, I just want to, for a minute, I want to just play preacher. I want to act like I'm a preacher. The town woman of ill repute <laughs> knocks on my office door, the resident holy man, and she says, let me tell you all about the Messiah. That would go over like a lead balloon 
what would be the typical response from a woman like this who's coming in to now educate? She's going to educate her town on the Messiah. She is, if we can put it this way, she's fulfilling the office of a prophet in this text. She's like the Samaritan John the Baptist, paving the way for Jesus to enter into the town of Samaria. But she's not a prophet. And she's not a holy man. And she's not John the Baptist. (laughs) She's the furthest thing. And Jesus touched her. And released her into the ministry of spreading the living water. Now, the question in the mind of the community in Samaria, apart from what we will see as a largely positive response, the question in the mind, I mean, what would be, what would be the question in your mind? Who do you think you are? Who, who do you think you are? Which I would suggest to you is exactly the right question. Who is she? Who is she? For those who are in the town, an initial blush, she's the social outcast serial adulterer with the live-in boyfriend. But that's not who she is in this text anymore. This woman is a sinner saved by grace who's on mission for Jesus Christ. She's his ambassador. She's his representative. She's the one who has become, as it were, not in an official capacity, but in the anointing of Christ, she has become the prophet of the living God. When you become a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, the realization is you've got to leave certain things behind. You've got to move towards other things. The misery and the brokenness that has become your life now gets turned into a ministry. And you begin to face the risks and the fears that so easily keep us from sharing Christ, you begin to move towards them in confidence and in courage. Because you've tasted living water. You're no longer living by the definitions of acceptability and success on earthly standards. You now have embraced savingly the definitions of identity and success according to gospel standards. And that frees you to be a disciple and it frees you to make a disciple. If you look at the fears that keep you from sharing Christ, they're almost always because you're afraid of a lack of approval, You're afraid of persecution. You're afraid of ridicule. You're afraid of mocking. You're you're afraid you won't know what to say. You're afraid you'll look silly. You're afraid you'll be embarrassed. You're afraid of all these things. All of these risks were more real for this woman than any of us in the room. But she had drank in a living water that had quenched her need for all of those things from people because she had gotten them from her heavenly father through Christ now. And she was living under the anointing of grace. And her misery was becoming a ministry. Now, if this is what it means to be a disciple, how does she reveal to us an example of what disciple making really looks like? 
What does it really look like? Well, at the end of this passage here in John chapter 4, you see something of what I would call a gospel movement break out here in Samaria. We're told in verse 39, many Samaritans believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. And then notice those same Samaritans invite Jesus to come into their homes. And many more Samaritans had the opportunity to meet Jesus. And then we're told in verse 41, many more believed because of his word. So Jesus, through the portal of the woman's, invited deeper and deeper and deeper into the community for more and more mission to take place. Now, if we had seen this, like, I mean, if you can just imagine this, let's put it in American context in the Great Awakening. You know, it's George Whitfield. You know, he, he comes outside of town and he stands on the stump and he speaks to a crowd of thousands and many are converted and then he goes into homes and many more get to hear him and then he moves on to the next town and he leaves, as it were, a gospel flurry a spiritual movement that's take place because of the Lord's work in his life. In a similar way, this woman who's known in this community is, is making a path for Jesus to move deeper and deeper into the community so that more and more people can hear from him directly or from her in what it is that she's received from him. Now, if this was 21st century America, let me tell you exactly what would happen. We would get this woman an agent. We would sign a book contract, make a movie about it, and she'd go, she'd go global teaching seminars on how to evangelize. That's what we would do with this woman. We would find a way to make a quick buck off of her. And we'd be asking her. I mean, her book title would be something like The Secret of Evangelism. Now, what is the secret? Well, here, here's the great thing. The, the book has been written... And it's, it's just one verse. Verse 39. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? There it is. I, I, were you expecting more? Were you expecting something more? More than, more than that verse? Some, some deeper training, no doubt, um, is what you were expecting. Well, I'd like, I'd like to suggest that those words give to us a model for sharing Jesus. A model for sharing Jesus. I want you to see what's embedded in the testimony of this woman. I want you to see, first of all, that if we are going to share Jesus, here's the very beginning point of doing so. As the Lord is bringing people into your mind and into your life who don't yet know Christ, and you may be the only believer in the Lord Jesus Christ that they know, and you as a disciple of Christ called to disciple-making, to the spreading of the living water, the gospel, the good news, what will you do to make Christ known? These three things, I think, are embedded in this woman's testimony. And the first one's very, very simple. We must invite others to meet Jesus. We must invite others to meet Jesus. Now we might think, that's just too simple. Have you tried it? Don't knock it till you tried it. 
Because for most of us, it looks too simple and it goes untried. Rather than the taking of the risk and trusting the Spirit to bear us fruit. We must invite others to meet Jesus. What do I mean? Well, she says it very simply. I mean, very simply. Come see a man. It's an invitation. It's come see a man. She simply invites people to see Jesus. The focus of her disciple making is say, here's Jesus. I'll talk with him. Get to know him. Ask him all kinds of questions. Get to know Jesus. Let me help you get to know Jesus. I, I think you'll be very surprised if you just get to know Jesus. How can I help you meet Jesus? I'd like to invite you to have an encounter with Jesus. Now the reason this is so, this is so remarkable and so almost, almost like embarrassingly simple it is because in Christianity, Jesus is the very center of our faith. To meet him is to know Christianity. To meet him is to know Christianity. It is called after, you know, you know not to speak the obvious, we're called Christians. It's, it's called Christianity. I'll give you, give you one guess as to why that's the case. Because it's all about him. It's all about, I mean, we're not called... We're not called, you know, mosaics after Moses or Abrahamics after... I mean, we're just not. We're called Christians. Why? Because the entirety of what the Bible is about and all of the Christian faith teaches is, is capsuled, is found in the person of Jesus Christ. We just invite people to come meet, meet Jesus. Now, we know that Jesus does this, and we know this is John's huge point throughout the Gospel of John because where else do we find in the Gospels the I am statements but in the Gospel of John? We find all seven of them here. And Jesus is always showing us that you know, I am the door, I am the vine, I am the good shepherd, I am the bread of life. Jesus is constantly showing us with the I am statements that everything that you've ever seen and promised and has been revealed finds its fulfillment in me. Finds its fulfillment in me. You don't have to look any further. Now the reason that is so radical, and actually the reason it's, it's, it's counterintuitive for the time in which we live, it means that Christianity is not a religion or a set of practices. But Christianity is a person. It's a relationship. We're meeting someone. We're meeting someone. That's fundamentally different than any other religion that you'll come across with. It's, it's a person. It's not, it's not do these ten things. It's not a practice of religion. Does, does practices come out of meeting Jesus? Oh, you better believe it. But are the practices the religion? Is it the way of salvation? No. It's all summarized in Jesus. It's all summarized in Jesus. It's really remarkable. I mean, this woman, in, in some sense, with all due respect, doesn't know any better than to just tell people to come see Jesus. She, she doesn't know any better. She's not gonna, she doesn't get caught up on, on doctrinal distinctions between denominations or, or prior church divisions or the complexities of church history or philosophical speculations about how can we really know that he's the Messiah. Like none of these things are bothering this woman. She just simply invites people to see Jesus and she lets it rest. Come see a man. Meet this man. You'll get it. Come face to face with him. 
Now, here's the question. How do we do that? Just a note. One of the things that we must be able to do as those who don't have the living incarnate Jesus, I did note that, that he's you know, not standing before us in person, as it were today, is that we must become conversant with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ so that people can meet him. That means going to the gospels themselves, I would say especially, and say, let's, let's go through the gospel, and why don't we just, why don't we listen to him? Why don't we, let's watch him. Let's, let's think about the questions that he's asking. Let's consider the things that he's saying. Let, let's meet with Jesus. Let's invite others to do that. And when questions arise, I think here's the second thing, because questions will arise. When you're in a dialogue with someone, why does Jesus do that? Questions arise for us when we're in the midst of the text. Trace the questions to how they would be fulfilled in Jesus. Trace the questions that arise to how they are fulfilled in Jesus. That won't necessarily solve everything, but it'll show that he's the very center of things. That's one of the things that's so beautiful about Jesus. When you begin to understand that he's actually the key by which the text of Scripture is is unlocked, but he's also the key by which our lives are understood. And you begin to trace people's lives, people's desires, people's experiences, historical movements, the whole trajectory of life, the whole question about the purpose and the meaning of life. As you begin to trace their meaningfulness into the person of Jesus Christ and what it is that he's done, very, very often the Holy Spirit is pleased to use that to bring forth light into the heart. She invited people to meet Jesus. I think, you, I think I'll, you'll see in a minute, it's, not, it's simple, but there's a layer to it. I want you to see secondly, in this phrase, she does, she does this. We must let our broken lives magnify Jesus. I think this is the very center of what she's doing. She says, come see a man. She invites people to see Jesus. But the second thing she does is she's let, she lets her broken life magnify Jesus. Now, this will be very uncomfortable. It's really quite amazing. For, for years, maybe decades, this woman has lived on the outskirts of town. And now, only moments after meeting Jesus, she runs into this town of people who've shunned her and condemned her. And she, she very interestingly, opens up her life to them. On the surface, it really doesn't appear like much. It's not very earth-shattering. I mean, he told me everything I'd ever, ever done. But I want you to think about this woman in this situation with her sinful past set before these very people. This took immense courage. How was she able to say, hey, listen, you guys know what's been going on with me and you know how terrible it is and you know how we don't talk about it except all of the time behind closed doors and never in front of my face. You know how that works. I just met a man who like knew all of that. Like that's got to be very odd for this community. Like a person who is now relieved of the burden and really honest about the burden and is living into it as a point of testimony for the power of Jesus. It's got to be very, very strange, very off balance for those who are hearing this from this woman. But I want you to think about what's really going on here. She has just met the greatest man who lives 
has ever lived upon the earth. In fact, she's met a man who's not a man. He's the son of God. She, she knows her sin and brokenness of her life. He knows it. And it was no stumbling block to him loving her and accepting her and offering to her living water. It was no, it was no stumbling block. Because she has experienced... The radical acceptance of of God himself through Jesus Christ, it has given to her a reservoir, a resource by which she can now face the condemnations and the gossip and the slander and the, the strife and the struggle that she's going to face with everybody else in the world. If you have acceptance from the one person that you need acceptance from, It gives you the strength to be buoyed and confident when you don't receive acceptance from those who are lesser than that one. That's exactly where this woman is. She no longer sees any reason to have to hide. She no longer sees any reason. You see, when you're truly changed by the gospel, you realize, you realize, it's what makes it so beautiful, that your acceptability is not based on whether you're a good or a bad person. In fact, if you really understand the gospel, you realize that the most morally superior people are in need of the gospel. And you realize the most morally reprehensible people are not beyond the reach of that gospel. Such a realization has a radical impact upon your heart that allows you to free yourself from holding grudges or resentments. It allows you to forgive those who have judged you wrongly. It frees you from false pride where you think you're amazing and more superior than others. You see, one of the very first signs of drinking in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is you begin to become honest and open about the things that you once hid. And instead of those things being blights on your character, they become means of proclamation of the sufficiency and need of Jesus. This woman can say, think of it, this woman can say, he told me everything I ever did Y'all know everything I ever did. And he said he loved me and accepted me. If he has loved me and accepted me, think of it, me. He can love and accept you too. This becomes the spirit of this woman. As the chief of sinners, she becomes the most qualified of evangelists. Because she sees her need of Christ in a light that's so great that it makes her free to make make certain his sufficiency. When we begin to understand our brokenness and Jesus' covering for our sin, we will begin to use that brokenness as a means for deploying ministry. For those who desperately need his grace. It's always concerning to me when I meet a believer who never can revisit the sins of their past in a way that gives them encouragement. And they always look back upon their past going, oh, I can't believe. Oh, it's just, you know, I don't even want to think about it. (laughs) Yes, we want to think about it. Yes, we want to think about it. Don't think about it. 
like that. Think about it like a Christian. Like that brokenness, that weakness, he saved you from. If you bring that out and you show it to others, you, you, the sexual promiscuity, the addiction, the, the brokenness of, of family lineage and, and generation, the stealing, the lying, all of the ugliness and even the things that you presently you presently struggle with, when that becomes the lead by which his light oversees the sharing of the faith, then it becomes a powerful promulgation of the strength of the sufficiency of Jesus. Do you know oftentimes while we are ineffective in our sharing of the gospel? Because we live lives that we act like we don't need it. We act like we're so good. It's a joke. We nullify the effect of the gospel when we act morally superior like someone who doesn't need the gospel and then sit on our high horse to try to share the gospel to people who really need it. You you picking up what I'm putting down? Is that making sense? Think of the places where you have been most effective in sharing the gospel if you're sharing the gospel at all. And think of the people who have made the biggest impact in your life in sharing the gospel. I bet they were really morally superior people who never showed their weakness. Right? Wrong. You see, the power of the gospel arises out of brokenness. And there isn't another path. There is another path. Which means maybe the reason for our lack of effectiveness is because the gospel is just not very central to our lives. And maybe the reason for our lack of effectiveness is we have not genuinely, we're not genuinely leading with the brokenness that Jesus has covered and we're not deploying it as a ministry. But we're covering up like it's not there anymore. When in fact, Jesus has forgiven our sins, not, not so that they would never be remembered though they are forgotten judicially. But he has forgiven our sins so that they will be redeemed for his glory. That's fundamentally different. That's fundamentally different. That's what this woman does. Do you know when this woman must have come into town, they they thought one of two things, which is what they thought of Jesus. They thought, okay, she's really lost it. I mean, she, she's, I mean, she's really lost it. I mean, she's come into town, and she's now openly talking about all the things that she's done and excited about a man who knew that, who apparently has saved her. Please get the men in the white coats and take this woman away. I mean, some of the crowd thought that. Did they think that about Jesus? Yes. They thought he was crazy. And then other people thought, something amazing must be going on here. I mean, I, some people thought, I've actually done worse than this woman, but I've been able to hide it. Where did she get the resource to come clean? I need that. 
I need that. And that became a pathway for the gospel. She invites people to see Jesus. She lets her brokenness become a means of ministry. But, but thirdly and finally, she raises the central question about Jesus. She raises the central question. Here's what she asks. Can this be the Christ? Can this be the Christ? Listen, the first part of her, um, her testimony is really, is really, it's really personal. Come see a man who told me everything I've, I've ever done. It's very personal. It's very personal. But the last question she raises is very objective and very universal. Can this be the Christ? The one that we've always waited for? Is he truthfully who it is that he's told me that he is and who it is that I'm, I'm believing he is? Is he not just, in other words, my personal savior? But is he, as the very end of this passage says, the savior of the world? Is he, is he? Can he be the savior of the world? I think this is so important for our time. This woman, I want you to see, she does not set up as Whitfield did in the Great Awakening, which was wonderful, different time, and just declaim to the gospel. Instead, she raised the question, and here's what she's doing. She's saying, I want you to go, I want you to go read the gospels and get to know Jesus. And I want to tell you about my personal encounter with him. And then I want to ask you, can he be the Christ? I think one of the most powerful things that happens is when we begin to read and understand who Jesus is and what he's done, and we see the lives of those who've encountered him changed, it becomes a compelling and persuasive, persuasive argument for the messiahship of Jesus. But what she is doing is welcoming investigation. I want you to investigate this Jesus. I want you to find out for yourself. Can this be the Christ? Are you going to be convinced? Not everybody's going to be convinced. Are you going to be convinced? I want you to read about him. I want you to hear my testimony. Could this be the Christ? She raises the question. She does it in kind of a similar way that Paul does in Acts chapter 17 when he goes into Mars Hill and he, he preaches about the unknown God that they don't know. And he says, I know this God and I want to tell you about him. And it says, some believed, others mocked, and others said, you know, we'll keep listening to you on this. I'm not ready to push all my chips to the center of the table to give my life over. To this Jesus, but I can't shake it yet. I can't dismiss it yet. I think building relationships with people where it's okay to investigate for a long period of time over the truthfulness of Jesus in personal relationship with how he's changed us is absolutely essential for our time. We need not be scared about that. And we need not be scared that there are going to be times where they ask questions that we're not going to have a clue as to know how to answer them. That only happens on every other page of the gospel to Jesus' disciples. Just remember, it's not up to us to convert or to change a soul. 
It's up to us to share Jesus and let him do the heavy lifting when it comes to change. That's his role, not ours. In this passage, Jesus says, lift up your eyes. The fields are white with harvest. Now the disciples who are showing up with food because Jesus was hungry and Jesus tells them he's got food that they don't know anything about because his food is to do the will of his Father. I think that you'll find that our food is to do the will of our Father as well. And that the reason we're not satisfied and contented and joyful in our Christian life is often because we are eating food that is not of the Father's will. And we're wondering why we're not satisfied. Jesus was sharing himself with this woman. And he was full of his Father. When we do likewise, we will find the same satisfaction. Let's share Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, provoke it in our spirits by the beauty of Jesus, by the glory of grace. To be a Christ-speaking, Christ-sharing people who love our neighbors enough to take the risk of making you known. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.